I had one more question for you, but um, sure. I'm not going to ask it. Uh, you got time. We'll save it. Just well, ask it. I'll, I'll, well, I'm going to throw I'm gonna it out die. there. Dan, Dan, I'm going to die tonight not knowing what the question is. <laughs> Come on. It's not. Well, is innovation truly innovation if it's not improving the outcome? And then you can ask the question like, well, what's the outcome? Is it is it for construction? Is it better productivity? Is it a better, better experience by the patient? Um, is it more productive doctors? But is innovate, because I bring this up, there's so many things that are touted in construction as innovation today that I think are shiny objects and are in some ways getting in the way of, of changing or bettering the, the outcome at the end of the day. And I, sometimes I see robots, like yeah. it's fun to go watch for a minute, but it's kind of like that bad YouTube video that uh, like the clickbait where um, it, it's cool to watch for a minute, but is innovation truly innovation um, or should it be recognized if it's not improving the process? So something to think about. Welcome to the EBFC show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Construction Accelerator. The design and construction industries come up with and build great things, but we also build in waste in how we do those things, in our interactions, in our contracts, in our logistics. So what does this do for our bottom line or our next project? The best firms maximize their value by removing that waste and only doing what's essential to the work, what makes them money. Construction Accelerator will train you to see the waste and give your teams the lean tools and experience to remove it immediately. All online, Construction Accelerator is made up of three to nine minute videos that can be watched again and again in the field, at the office, and at home, all broken down by topic. Need to learn pool planning? We have videos on the process, how to set up a room, and how to kick off a team. Need to set up a target value delivery project? We discuss all the aspects of TVD, especially cost. Or maybe you just need to brush up on 5S. Well, we have videos on that as well. You can download and print reference materials to use on site to immediately translate watching into doing. Subscribe today at trycanow.com. Let's build an industry, not just a project. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Part of why we're here is uh, I found your this show and some of what you've uh, just messaged about to be interesting. So if we have time at the end, I'd love to fire a couple questions. Yeah, absolutely. Let's turn about fair play. <laughs> I love okay. talking about myself, Dan. So don't even don't even hesitate. <sighs> you Good. just ask him. Well, I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it for the last five minutes. Oh, that's not enough time. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, set the right, right? window. Kayla feels it. She feels it. She's like, Felipe can talk all the time. I, uh, I'm on the other end. I don't like talking about myself that much. So that's a, well, we'll Dan, you help me, help me dig in on her to get her oh, to expose. Super. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so super. She, she's doing, well, one thing I'll say before we get going is Michaela, like she said, has a second presentation today. When I first started working with Michaela, she was, uh, in a shell, I will say she was, um, these, this, something like this, she would have not slept for two <laughs> to three days before. She'd be mm -hmm. a wreck coming mm -hmm. into it and just uh, seeing her grow into, we were talking about it this morning, of being 
so good at presenting, comfortable with it, and uh, I, Michaela, I'm proud of you for uh, thank you. Come. Yeah, I blacked great. out. I think the first couple times, or walked off of a stage <laughs> feeling like my legs were overcooked noodles. But uh, I'm sitting, um, and we should be good to go. I think that is awesome. That's going to stay in. That's a good little <laughs> little kudos for Michaela. <laughs> oh, I thought you, you, Michaela. I thought when you were saying you blacked out that you're going to black out right now because Dan was giving you a compliment. But I'm glad to see you have a better relationship <laughs> than that. No, 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 no. So we can start with you, Dan, since you're on stage cool. right for me. Really been in construction my entire life. I since 16. Um, uh, before I was even out of high school, I, I wasn't ready to go to college. My my parents, I think probably thought maybe I should go into the military. I, I had some, uh, I guess, a little reckless streak in me that um, had to be flushed out. So um, I got out of high school. I went into the trades. I got to work more as a blue-collar worker. I was um, a labor a certified welder. I, I joined the union and ended up working my first four years um, building projects with my hands, which was, it was a cool start to my career. I ended up I had a bad accident, a welding accident, that I had a 55-gallon drum blow up, and it actually uh, laid me up for almost six months. I ended up in the hospital, and um, I, it was the best thing that ever happened to me in the sense that it was a transition point of I, I wasn't ready to go to high school or to college when I got out of high school, uh, but after being out of work, I decided I was going to go back and get my CM degree and went back to Sac State. Got a degree. I, I continued to work um, as a welder and in the field while I went to Sac State. Um, but it was kind of that pivot point. If that accident wouldn't have happened, um, I don't know if I would. I'd probably still be working in the field, which would be awesome too. Um, but it really gave me chance to give thought to. Um, I, I thought I could have a greater impact. I thought I could do something um, different and more from the office side. So that's where I started. A little background on the company, we're, we're a company of about 350 employees. We're based out of Sacramento, been in business for 45 years. Uh, what I'm most proud of and talk about uh, as frequently as possible is, is our mission statement, and that is leading the evolution of construction, and it's why we're ex excited to be here and talking to you today. Of um, We're out trying to change the world, change our industry for the better. And I've got a team that's behind that. I love having Michaela here because she's another one that um, she loves to speak into the microphone about how we're changing the industry and trying to get people um, to join us and come on this mission with us. Our mission of leading the evolution of construction was actually in the downturn of 2009, 2010. And when I would say leading the evolution of construction, people would look at me like uh, uh, I was in left field, like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, we need to go like, we need to find a job. Like we need to make sure we're making money. It's taken time. The most exciting part of my day, my job, is getting to see people um, wanting to come along and actually leading and, and driving our mission on their own. So, uh, last thing I'll say is we're a MEP contractor. We're a specialty contractor. That's really our roots. Forty-five years later, um, we're, we're we've been multi-trade. We're still multi-trade. That multiple trade delivery and taking it to the the manufacturing side of how can we build better projects off-site. I live here in Sacramento. I'm waited a little bit longer than most to get married. I just got married a year or two ago. And hey, congratulations! Yeah, that's exciting. And my wife have best wife in the world. Um, she, I'm glad that I waited and found the right partner. But we just had our second daughter, and um, those two girls keep me busy. So, uh, Michaela, I'll hand off to you. So I never thought I was going to work in construction. I also, um, I was 
working in the mortgage industry. Um, it was just a job. Ended up having a ruptured appendix and also was in the hospital for uh, a little over a week and went on disability for two months uh, and needed a job. And I grew up out in Rancho Marietta, which is kind of a suburb of Sacramento. And there was a gentleman that lived out there that owned a local mechanical uh, outfit here in Sacramento. And I went to work in a job site trailer, making copies, answering phones, but uh, spent about eight or nine years at that company and learned an absolute ton. Um, I'm very grateful for everything that they taught me uh, and then made the move to Mark III about six years ago. Yeah, I never thought I was going to be in construction. I went to school on a golf scholarship and stayed in school as long as they paid me to golf, uh, kind of bounced around from major to major, wanted to be a photographer. Uh, my parents continuously told me to get a real job but yeah that's kind of the how i ended up here i could tell you know both of you have you know a, a common passion for doing things better and challenging the status quo which is what the show is all about it's all about you know how we engage in industry so i'm super glad to have both of your perspectives which are different and unique and i like that that you kind of fell into it you know maybe not so much you dan you kind of got blown up into it <laughs> <laughs> like, like the, I was, it was a forced, forced yeah. entry. It was. Uh, it's not always like a clear path. It's definitely in the United States. We don't encourage kids to go into the trades or to go to school. You know, to go into construction. Even though about one out of seven people are working in the construction industry supply chain, which is it's a lot. So there's a lot of people out there that are call this a career and make a living out of it and uh, should be proud. And I like that you guys are making things better. What is the geography that Mark Three covers? We're, we're California-based, so we, we've done work in Texas, we've done work in Colorado, Nevada, but the, the lion's share of our work, and I think really the focus for our next 10 years is all California-based. Say as far as industries, we, we're doing a lot of e-commerce work um, with Amazon and a few other players, uh, but uh, the lion's share of our work is in the, the medical industry, and that's where Really, as we talk later about Project Mountain and what we're doing to, to change the industry, we've found that the best partners, in, in our opinion, for driving change in the industry are in, in that medical arena. Um, they're some of the, the people that I think have the most buy-in um, to not just changing one project, but the future, the next 10 years of projects. Our focus, a lot of e-commerce, large warehouse work, um, some industrial work. Lion share medical. The team, I would, I always say we're, people ask about culture as they come in to interview with Mark III, and I, I say we're, we're a young team, and that's not in, in number of years or experience, but when you come into our office, you'll, you'll feel that we have a fresh energy to us. Um, a lot of buzz in the office. We're not a quiet office. Um, they're, they're a noisy group. Maybe COVID has changed that a little bit. Um, but it's starting to, it's funny, it's starting to come back. I mean, just the last few weeks as people are starting to come back in the office, um, there's a buzz that's back in this office that's invigorating, that it gets people fired up. Just on the note of you saying the buzz in the air, I think about, we Dan and I have a check-in every uh, every week on Tuesdays and about two weeks ago, because some of us are working remotely. We've been, Dan and I have been in the office um, for over six or seven months now, but disconnect between people, uh, I couldn't put my finger on it. And just the last week we had a meeting two weeks ago and I was like, I just feel like something's off. And then last week we were transitioning more people back into the office and I just had more pep in my step. Like seeing the people that we work with, a lot of them are friends, they're not just people. I spend more time with them than I do with my family a lot of the time. So it's nice to have people back and um, 
it's, it is an exciting workplace. I'm from coming where I where I worked previously. Couldn't be more different in how uh, like the culture of just people uh, enthusiastic about what they're doing, and um, there is just an energy I would say inside this building that. Um, gets people excited. Oh, that's great. And then and speaking about the building, where is the, the primary location for Project Mountain? For those of you that don't know, prefabrication, modularization, kitting is something that's been in the construction industry for over 100 years, and it just hasn't uh, taken root and really, you know, more traction. So, Dan, you mentioned that uh, you're focusing more with uh, healthcare providers. I think they are, as, as a market, customer segment most interested in this type of stuff where does the magic happen our approach is really standardized design manufacture but um, and i say that because uh, you nailed it prefab modular been around for for ages um, and they haven't taken hold and one of the drivers for that in my opinion is that it's it's focused on the outcome not the process and I think industrialized construction, I think standardized design manufacture focus more, more around the process um, and the outcome can be a lot of things. It can be better construction, it can be better kitting or what we call MSKs, it can be modular. Um, but I, I so often hear people talk about prefab and it's, it's where I started. When I was welding at the very beginning, I worked in a prefab shop and um, I think that's something I'm, I'm trying to get people away from. Part of the things that I do for my day job is I travel to projects all over the United States and sometimes even get snaked out abroad and people are not uh, they're really not aware because it's not every it's not every job so a lot of people don't know I think awareness is really low on this option so if you're if you're bringing something new you know give us let's expand that definition a little bit more for people that that maybe think they know what prefab is or don't know what it is at all you know versus your your approach and let's Let's bring that your vocabulary into the into the conversation with the industry. I think of prefab as a way for the contractor to maximize profit. That's really how it came to be. Maybe increased schedule um, for a faster delivery, but it's not necessarily trying to give everybody, all stakeholders involved, a better process that translates not just to a better project delivery, um, but again to the next ten projects. How do we grow and improve for the the bigger picture? So prefab to me is. It's, it's great, and if I was just going to be a contractor and wanted to maximize profits, um, prefab is a, a great option to take work off-site, try to um, find a way to build it cheaper and faster um, for my own benefit. It's usually contractor-centric. It's not, it doesn't involve all stakeholders to make, like, like I said, standardized design manufacture, which is, is our approach to delivering projects. We have to have the architects buy-in. We have to have the owner completely bought in. We have to have the engineers bought in. We have to have the, not just owner, but the actual people that are going to use the facility when we're done. I mean, it takes a lot of front end work um, to make that happen. And it takes looking at more than just one project. It takes looking like for a Sutter Health, it takes looking at their, how are they going to deliver their next 10, 10 projects? And what can we truly standardize, not across one project, but across their, their companies? I've been around you know, the industry for over 20 years, and, and it's, it's always been there, but it's been there in such a small number of people. And as you're talking about bringing people in, even those end users, into that uh, conversation about what can we standardize, that's something that's different. 
I think that's worth uh, elaborating on. No, I agree. I think that what we're trying to do is incorporate all of those parties um, and not just focus on the gain of us independently. We're looking at how can we collaborate with the whole, from the end user to the first person that starts doing a conceptual design, and then take that, you know, obviously on it'll be delivered on a project, but not just that project, all the projects. And then to touch on where the magic happens really quick. Our office is here um, in kind of almost bordering South Sacramento. And we did have a couple of prefabrication shops um, when I first started here on this site. Uh, And we've since built a full, what we're doing, manufacturing facility about a mile down the road where we took all the trades that we deliver. And if we decided like, if we're going to maximize what we can do, we can't have half the guys working on one side and half the guys working on the other side because it just wasn't, it wasn't efficient. So we put a consultant into place um, that, you know, a lean consultant that showed us the best ways to have changeover in case we had a, you know, ramp up in one trade and it had to move things out of the way. There's work cells set up. It's designed to have the, all five trades that we're offering in one, building and it's been it's been awesome it's 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 exciting people when we take people in there for a tour you can see like people that do get it their face kind of lights up and we usually wait for questions at the end but there's people that are like chomping at the bit every time we stop they're like what's that how does this work what and it's it's exciting to see other people get excited and it's actually the people that you see them walk up and i i will think they're not going to be excited this is going to be a dud and by the end of it they're like that was awesome how can we work we got to find a project to work together on so that's where the magic happens. Um, All right, South Sacramento. It's the mag- It's the new Magic Kingdom. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it is. So, it's uh, almost the happiest place on earth. Very cool. So you mentioned you got five trades under one roof. What are those trades again? So we have a piping area, uh, mechanical piping. We have a plumbing area. We have a duct area where we're fabricating our own rectangular ductwork. We have an electrical area, and then we've also added a metal stud framing table line. So we have an air. A line where we build our framed openings. Um, that framed opening slides down a, I call it roller skates, which is in that probably the most technical term, but it looks like a, a roller blade. So it comes down that. It gets into the uh, the exciting part of the table where we have it expands and contracts. You put your track and your studs in there. It's got screw dollies that slide up and down the sides and applies a screw from the top and the bottom. That slides off. It's then received a couple feet away to where. We put in our electrical and wall assemblies, our plumbing and wall assemblies, any low voltage, anything that's going to be living in that wall. Um, And it's just a, we were sending those out as MSKs on a cart previously, but we kind of took a step back on a project, a couple projects that we had a couple years ago. And we thought, why don't we, instead of sending it on a cart, send it in a wall panel? Like this is, let's take that piece of scope away from the framer, um, coordinate what the opening is, slap it in there. It's been cool. We have some case studies that we did, a standard exam room that we built. We did a traditional MSK with it on carts, and it took two guys 10 days to build that. And by increasing the manufacturing element and doing those wall panels, we were able, able to save three and a half days off of a 10-day schedule. It's cool, and it's exciting to watch. One of the buildings I just finished, uh, I do have some time-lapse footage of it that I'm starting to put in into loops and to see just the panels come in and then it just kind of domino effect through the building. It's it's pretty cool um, to watch in fast forward and actually standing there just watching it happen like, you know, every four minutes they're putting in another wall across a floor. And I think, you know, for people listening that aren't scheduling every day on jobs, like that 10 day example, which you, which you laid down there is that's actually pretty impressive itself. What's the typical stick built 
for something with a similar size, how long does that take? Let me give you a little bit more background on what that was. We took a typical Sutter exam room is what we based it on, a whole virtual piece. Um, we then designed um, kits that included all the material, cut to length, prepackaged, kitted, um, all the tools needed, the in instructions, um, think of an Ikea, like if you're putting together a lac shelf, but less Allen wrenches and more yeah. exciting tools. There's um, a lac shelf floating around this studio uh, right now. I, I'm sure there's one <laughs> in close proximity to me as well. Um, but yeah, we took these kits and we had two non-trade specific mechanics um, assigned to the project and they received just-in-time deliveries each day with their day's worth of work. That took them 10 days and that's from metal stud framing all the way through paint and everything finished in the room. What it takes a typical exam room uh, to be built on a site. I don't know if we could compare apples to apples. How big is the floor with how many exam rooms total? The one that I'm referring to was our Project Mountain. So we built one room at a time and we built four rooms total here. Building that we're doing um, that we just finished in real life. Roughly a 9,000 square foot floor um, and I believe the second floor has, call it 20-ish exam rooms on it. And we were able to set that floor of panels. It also has offices, some restrooms, clean, clean med storage and whatnot. But we were able to set a whole floor of panels, our first swing at it, uh, in four days. Wow. I mean, for all the people listening, and Dan, that's super impressive. I mean, you guys don't even realize how impressive it is because you're, you're too close to it. But... You're knocking the socks off of pretty much any stick-built attempt. The four rooms alone uh, for operating rooms could be months long before from the time that people start with layout to final painting, and you're doing it in less than a week. Best in class, I would say. Those walls, when we set them in that four days, they weren't finished to paint through that. That was just setting the framing. Okay. It's still. So, it's but, still, but I will add on to impressive. it. We do have... Um, people on our team that are traditional framers and have looked at me like I'm a fish riding a bicycle when I've showed them the framing table or things like that. Like I could beat that. There's no way that that's yeah, going to be faster than me. And when we did the first day of walls on site, I drove away from the site just pumped because we, we set what the area that I wanted in a day. We met, we met the goal that I wanted. And I drove away talking to a coworker saying, now all I want is that one guy to call me and say, I'm listening. He called me later on that afternoon because he had lent us a couple guys to help install and said, so I heard it went really well out there today. And I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> damn right it did. And so getting those people, um, cause I always, I, I always say like, you can tell people things constantly, like, yeah. and it, in meetings in here, we'll tell people things, but buy-in is where it's at. And getting the people that aren't the early adopters, the ones that are the naysayers to kind of stop and raise an eyebrow and go, all right, I'll listen now is something that gets me excited because I'm on the forefront of how we're, what we're doing and what we're changing um, in, in what we're in Mark three, I would say, um, change is scary. And people kind of look at me like, sometimes they don't make eye contact because like, well, here she comes. She's going to ask us to change something. And uh, so when I, when I get people that kind of turn and like yeah. say, yeah, what, let's, let, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Uh, that's what makes me excited is getting those people to believe in what we're doing and why it's beneficial. Yeah, I love that. What do you want to add to that, Dan? It's been a long journey. I've been with Mark III for 14 years now, a mission of leading the evolution of construction for 10 of those years, or almost 10 years now. Like I said, the first time I, I said we're going to have a, a mission statement that isn't around quality or making money, but driving change in our industry and, and making this industry better than we found it. There was, just like Michaela said, there was people that looked at me like, 
a fish riding a bicycle or whatever the hell you want to call it. They, they were not bought in. And so 10, 10 years ago, our team saying, what the hell are you talking about? Um, five years ago, setting out with um, a, a team and taking on an R&D initiative that was off-site, so not trying to do it on a construction project where time um, or schedule and money always get in the way of R&D, in, in my opinion. So five years ago, we said, we're going to do this off-site and on our own. We're going to fund it ourselves. We're going to let the project speak for itself. Does it make sense when we're done? Did we learn something and did it make the process better? And there was a lot of naysayers, a lot of people on the sidelines still. And every year we get more alignment with our team and our customers that this works. The Sutter MLB project, we beat the framing schedule by, I think it's 73%. I mean, 73% and we we save money. Like on the first iteration, we weren't supposed to save money on the first iteration. There's still too much that you have to learn, too much that um, might might have to happen one time and and break to improve on the next project and start saving money. We save 10% off of budget or more than 10% on our first iteration. So you all of a sudden have the people who are on the sidelines that are the most old school, traditional, don't want to change type individuals saying, put me in coach, I wanna be part of this. That's what I think today, I know we jumped from uh, our manufacturing facility to really where we're at and what we're delivering today, but that's what's exciting. Um, That's what's fueling our organization today, the proof. And Michaela is the one who's really, she's the boots on the ground. She's the one that delivered Project Mountain 2, our second R&D project. She delivered um, the UC Davis Medical Clinic, which was our first, it was a partnership with Bolt where we manufactured uh, MEP panels and, and the overhead systems. Um, she's run the Natomas project, and uh, it's cool to see her get jazzed. Um, but she's getting jazzed because the people are starting. I mean, our team is is starting to buy in and, and wanting to get involved. So that's that's what I'm excited about. Kudos to you. Like a lot of people don't realize that in the design and construction industry in general. There's almost no money spent on research and development. Construction companies in the U.S. on net revenue spend somewhere less than 1% of their profit towards R&D, which is like teeny tiny little number. Like you mentioned, you know, some of the margins that general contractors have. Now, again, you know, general contractors, you know, don't take offense, but most of their margins are like two cents on the dollar, you know, sometimes five cents on the dollar. Specialty trades or, you know, companies that self-perform, like some of the trades you mentioned, could be north of 10%. It's a tight margin commodity type of environment. So you're really bucking the trend to go do this research project off-site just to learn. Like you're investing in learning. That is something that's very unique. I've never heard that story before where somebody as an organization decided to invest you know, big dollars on building something that won't be used for just the sake of learning. I'll throw Bolt's name out there as a company that's trying um, to innovate and they're investing. I think internally when I went and told our CFO that I wanted to go spend four to five million dollars and build a manufacturing facility and uh, spend a a large chunk of money on an R&D project that we weren't going to get paid for, we were going to tear it down when we were done. He again looked at me like, what, what'd you say? Go home, go home. Take a shower, put your clothes back on, come back. Uh, when you're awake, we're going to talk. But he, he came from a large, uh, a billion-dollar-a-year uh, contractor. He's like, we, we, we don't do this. We like, we're, we're go work the system um, to make the money. And not that he, he's still with me and he's, he's right behind me in what we're doing today. 
Um, but it does take saying, we're not going to maximize profits this year. Um, we're not going to maximize profits maybe over the next five years. Um, and we're not truly in this to make money. I, one thing that I, I say is when I'm done, I have about 30 years left in my career, is that I am going to leave this industry better than I found it. I don't know how much money I'm going to make. I might make a lot. I might make a little. Uh, but I'm going to leave this industry better than I found it and we are going to change the process. I've seen it, I've built projects with my own hands. I've seen the broken processes and the disconnect between all parties involved in a construction project. And we, we have to make this better. And um, just in the last 12 to 24 months of seeing some projects where owners are uh, seeing value in what we're doing, that we're saving them money, that we do have a better process. It's nice because they say it's, it's lonely at the top a lot of times. You make a decision like this to go invest a, a large chunk of money, or at least for, we're, we're a smaller company, but it's a, it's a large chunk of money for me out of, out of my own pocket um, to go do this. It's lonely at the top, and so it's nice to see and feel the people starting to come along and, and join us. Owners coming along, our employees coming along, and starting to, instead of having Dan drive it, um, having our team drive it. So it's it's an exciting time. That is really exciting. So industrial manufacturing is what we want to call it, Dan. Is that the right phrasing? Tell me to go kick rocks and maybe twist my arm to go the other way. But industrialized construction at Mark III, it's uh, standardized design manufacture. is, And if you do that, you're going to end up with the ability to prefabricate something, do full volumetric modular, which is our, our current R&D initiative, or deliver typical, uh, what we think of as stick frame construction mm -hmm. better. I mean, if you, if you nail that process on the front end, it gives you a lot of options um, once you go to build, but it all happens way ahead of time. Before potentially a project has even been identified, you're, you're looking within an organization, what can we standardize across the organization for all projects. Industrialized construction, so I think okay. that's, I, if I was going to pick like a common, uh, something that in the last few years I've found a, a group that's trying to change our industry. It's a it's IC or industrialized, industrialized construction, um, and they're looking at the process. So I think I can relate to, to that group, and it's a, a term I use. It's a group that's not focused on the outcome or, prefab or modular or um, stick build, it, it's a group focused on the process of how we get there and how we improve before we ever uh, get to the actual construction phase of the project. So industrialized construction is, is a group I can relate to. As far as what we call it at Mark III, it's, our, our approach is standardized. Get with an organization, figure out everything that can be standardized. And that's standardized with options. It doesn't have to be just a, a one size fits all, but standardization. You can then go into design. A lot of times people try to design for standardization, mm -hmm. which I believe is that that's more of a project centric approach. You standardize throughout the organization. You then design or put in all the filler that can't be standardized and bring the standard units or assemblies together and then you manufacture. Um, manufacture. Manufacturing being the final stage and just like for a UC Davis Med Clinic or Natomas with Sutter Health, probably the easiest part um, was the actual manufacturing and construction. A lot more of the 
um, headaches and um, work went into the, the front end standardization. You got me in some uncharted territory, Dan. This is a new way of thinking about this. The listeners are going to really like that and get excited about this. How did people react during the process? It's such an evolutionary process. I don't know that everybody still gets it that we worked with on a project that we just did. The GC was trying it because the owner was involved. And I would say that Sutter brought us into that and uh, the GC did it because the owner wanted to do it. And I don't know that they would do it on future projects or whatnot, but they were they were along for the ride. We went through design and um, we standardized to the best of our ability, but even going through it at the beginning, we were like, okay, s- the a sink. We thought we can standardize the sink in this in-wall assembly and we had Sutter walk through and they, I, w- I went and visited three different projects and found three different exam sinks and three different gooseneck paddled faucets at every single one. So getting every, all the players still like we're st- it's still we're not we're not 100% there yet. We're still working on that in that first square of standardizing. So that made us manufacturing for this project. Um, it, I mean, it, it all fell together because we did standard. We got what our standard was. Um, but I don't know that that they're there in a spot where they are definitely ready for standardized. Um, so get is the the main piece. I mean, it's it's the first piece for a reason. And I always I use the analogy of you got to get the right foot out of the batter's box, or you're gonna you know if you get the wrong foot out out of the first the first step, you're screwed. Like you're it's just like yeah. domino effects down the path. Um, so that part is still work. We're still working on the standardized piece for the then design and manufacture. There is a lot of variation. One of Sutter's competitors, Kaiser, is my primary care and they're trying to standardize as well and it's a struggle because you know where you are in the geography and just the time of year that things are built and availability just because you you know those three sinks that you mentioned might not have been intentional there might have been changes in code or evolution manufacturing that that required three different sinks yeah and and the sink like people think oh it's a wall hung sink like it doesn't really matter well it changes the spread of the the supply in in the wall so it does it, it trickle down it's that same thing of getting the right foot out if we're going to use this sink and we have this and it's not here like that makes a difference now once something goes in because you guys mentioned project mount one project mount two you know for people that aren't as close to it as you are what do you share like i understand project mount one is that first research investment dan that you convinced your cfo after you went home shower changed and won't splash cold water on your face and got him to give you some cash and you tore it down so it's, it sounds like so sad they build something and just tear it down and then What's what's Project Mountain Two? Project Mountain One was um, uh, it was actually an overhead racking assembly, a large um, overhead racking assembly with mechanical, electrical, plumbing, all trades, um, built two ways. So we we built it stick frame in one side of our warehouse, um, and we built it from a manufactured assembly, which was basically set in place in about three hours on the other side. And Whoa. yeah, comparative analysis of the uh, how the two. Um, came together. We actually brought an Oshpot inspector in to inspect both both assemblies and actually write us up for for violations. But that was Project Mountain One um, was a, an overhead assembly and how well we could build it or manufacture it versus stick build, and we learned a lot from that. The second iteration was the partnering with Sutter Health, partnering with them to deliver a four pot exam room and trying to get better with each iteration of the exam room. Uh, the first two were, were brought in as, as kits, or what we call MSKs, which are standardized kits with uh, instructions on how to install them. The second two rooms were manufactured. So we manufactured the walls 
and basically set them in place and we're ready to sheetrock um, and start finishing them out. And it was just a goal of seeing incrementally or from room to room how much we could get better. That ended up parlaying into the Natomas project with Sutter Health and, and just getting to learn more about Sutter Health wants to standardize. They're, um, I love Sutter Health because they lead from the front and they don't just say that they want to change the industry. They're, I truly believe they're invested in it and will change it for for the better and so they told us not only do we want to standardize we already have and we said well we'll show us like yeah. let's see this is this is great like this is what we want to do and so they showed us plans and then Michaela went out and walked three different facilities and then we talked to the architect on the project and we're like you guys aren't standardized everything everything is different <laughs> like you guys uh, you might want to and it's also not constructible these are nice architectural files that are, I mean, these are nice lines, but this isn't, we can't send this to our manufacturing shop. It's not spooled. Um, there's no directions on how this is to be built. So until it's cost loaded, um, can be manufactured, code compliant, has connection details of how it's gonna tie into the rest of the facility, it's not, this isn't a, a standard. Standardizing this project took us closer for a standard Sutter exam room. We have the recipe. We never have to recreate the recipe. We might have to tweak the mm -hmm. recipe, add a little bit more water, um, crack an extra egg. Uh, we, we might have to change it if it's a code issue, um, first floor versus second floor versus third floor. But for their standard exam room, it might be a left swing, a right swing, a sliding door. There's, there's some options within that. But we have now with Sutter nailed down the recipe and can tell you the cost, how long it will take us to manufacture, how long it will take us to deliver and install for a standard exam room. And that's that for us was, that's a win. Yeah. It might only be one standard exam room, but that makes up 50% of a typical MOB. And on the next one, we're gonna do an exam room plus. And we we might've built that on the last one, but we don't, we, we haven't really nailed down that recipe. So every iteration, we're going to develop more more standards. Yeah. It's, it's, just to add on top of that, it's amazing like looking at, a, at the plans that I've seen from the two facilities that I've reviewed by just standardizing the exam room. And then if you take on the unisex toilets, like if you do staff and uh, patient toilet, and if you do an office space from calculating it, it's about 73%, 75% of the usable space. If you eliminate the waiting rooms and you eliminate the hallways and corridors about, and you standardize those three different spaces, you can take that file and then duplicate it from site to site if you have the standard established. Wow, that's a high reliability. So I mean, for them, for capital planning, because I think a lot of the large health code builders like Sutter, they're like on some 10 year, sometimes longer forecasting windows for some of their master planning. So with your help and what you guys are delivering, how long things really take, they're always having these repeat design things. And a lot of that's just coming right off, like boom, right off. And the same for the construction part, it's gotta be changing, you know, their, their future approach and getting the, I think you're introducing the ability to scale for the first time, which I have not heard before. A lot of new things here, Dan, you are like on the cutting edge. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we're changing the world today. We've made, like I say, the last 
if you look at 10 years ago, it was uh, extremely painful and uh, not a lot of buy-in. Five years ago, people were starting to at least take on faith that maybe let's do it for Dan. It's nice that it's finally starting to get some love and recognition from our internal team and some of the owners we're working for. So that's the exciting part, but we got a long ways to go. You know, when I came into the industry two decades ago, we had a much, much, much larger workforce. And then today we've had a dwindling workforce and it's not glamorous. Like people aren't like knocking our doors down to come work at our companies because it's construction. And there are other, other industries. I mean, we're competing with all the Silicon Valley here on the West coast. And then people on the East coast are competing with, you know, the financial markets and then and then in the southern areas, you've got other larger manufacturing. The difficulties in finding craft labor, um, I've been, uh, we're actually in Michigan right now. I guess that's where I'll take you is we're, we're looking in Michigan to find young 18 to 22-year-old people that are leaving high school, not wanting to go to college, and want to find a, something that they can really grab onto that's a, a great paying and a long-lasting career. And so we're, we're having to look out of state, which we feel like we've mined California and we're getting outbid. It's, I think, in, especially in California, it's not seen as being glamorous and it's looked down upon to be going to the trade. And our schools are not supporting it. The, the trade programs in our schools are faltering or, or gone. Um, to really lead people down that road. So I, I guess uh, the fact that we're looking in Michigan, it, it's a sad state of affairs, and I, I hope that we can change that. And that's, I, I think it really starts in the high schools and the perception of this career. It's something you can uh, hang your hat on, that it's going to be there. It's not, not going anywhere. It might change the form of how we're delivering projects, but it's going to be there. It's a good-paying job, and it's respectable work. You are improving people's lives and what you're doing when you're out building projects, medical, industrial, um, everything we're doing is is making people's lives better. And I wish more people saw it that way. As we talk to our employees, uh, there's a lot of concern when you go tell your team um, that we're eliminating the craft position within our company. We're trying to start manufacturing projects and we want to install them with mechanics, non-trade specific mechanics that are doing multiple trades. The first thing the guy says to you is, you're taking my job. Like, what What did you just say? That, that sounds horrible. I'm a craftsman, and you're talking about getting away from craft labor. The number one thing that I want to ensure for myself, my company, um, and, and the team is that we're, we're relevant in the future. And to be relevant in the future in an industry that has to change, we have to be dynamic. And the future doesn't mean the craftsman is gone. The craftsman is now what we call our trade specialists. They're the ones coming up with the next idea of how we're going to manufacture better, faster, cheaper, how, how we're going to come up with that, that next great product that we're going to build in our manufacturing facility. I'm not going to do that. It's going to, today, that's where the best for, as we talked about prefab, the best prefab ideas or how we're going to do a lot of the virtual modeling for a project. It happens in most companies with ex-tradesmen. Like they're the ones that are the, the brilliant guys behind the scenes uh, coming up with how we're going to route this, how we're going to make it better. That's something that we have to continue to communicate because we do get the feedback as we talk about changing the way we deliver projects of, am I still, as a craftsman, am I still relevant in the future? And the answer is hell yes, but it's in a better paying role and you're actually out in front as, as one of our key players coming up with that next product or idea of what we're going to manufacture to make our projects better. 
Mac, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. It's changing the, I guess, the perspective. It's something also that moves even from craft labor, like up through the design portion. Like people are like, if you're standardizing this and then we, we, like you're taking away the design aspect uh, upstream um, or eliminating certain parts of it. And it's like, yeah, but by doing that, you're going to have more bandwidth to do more projects. More efficient you can become the more you can do. I like that approach. And I want to make sure that you guys get anything that we missed to give it enough time to talk about. And we'll go to Michaela first because you're, you got the big smile. We've produced a case study of what our findings were, basically what we did, what our findings were, um, what we learned, how we screwed up, how we could get better. Um, so we'll be producing one of those based on the Sutter MOB that we're wrapping up. Um, we're in the commissioning process right now. So we will be Sending it out to, uh, you'll probably get a copy, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we'll send yeah. it to owners that we're trying to talk to, different trade partners that we're trying to talk to, as well as putting it out on LinkedIn, on our website. It'll probably be uh, incorporated into a blog post, social media, etc. So it's exciting. Um, I am I have all my metrics that I gathered through the project, and I'm now you know, piecing those out to make it user-friendly, I guess, because right now it's like a... You know, but what you can't see in my office is the uh, excessive amount of whiteboards and things pinned to my wall <laughs> of how uh, how my mind works. So I'm I'm putting all my data in a user friendly um, format so that we can write that case study and it'll be out next month. I'm so, just excited. I'm excited for Dan to ask you a couple questions. I yeah. mean, we were you said <laughs> oh, okay. at the beginning that you were like <laughs> you like to talk about yourself. So I'm like buckling up and ready to oh listen God, to what we got. And Michaela, definitely we'll put uh, links to that case study in the show notes so people listening and, and want to see this will get it right. Like just look down, people, in the description. It'll be in the show notes so you can pick it up, click on those hyperlinks, and see exactly into Michaela's mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's something you'll buckle up for too, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah. Part of why I was excited to come talk with you is uh, first I heard your name at LCI when you were named, was it Person German's of the Award. Year? That was the... Um, the the Chairman's sure. Award 2019. It's right behind me. I got the here. Let me let me grab it. Well, plug it. <laughs> oh, ooh. I heard heard the name, but didn't know the person. Like this conversation is fun. I saw your guys' first podcast, and I loved what you were talking about. We're of the same mindset. We we have to change the industry. There's got to be a better way. There's 40 to 50 percent waste in each one of these projects. It drives me nuts to drive up to a project and see all this waste. What are we doing to, to change it? it? It kind of knocks both of our companies, and it's about general contractors and subcontractors. And the simple question is, are we the number one cause of the problem of waste? Because our, my company, and potentially yours, is, from a contracting standpoint, the system is set up not to drive innovation, change, collaboration, continuous improvement. The GC controls the chaos, and they're, they become good at that. But they don't. If the chaos went away, their role would um, be not eliminated, but it would their, their power would shrink in some way, shape, or form. And the subcontractors to come in there sometimes make more chaos, and then sometimes come and solve that problem. After we, we've kind of created not taking project knowledge from from one project to the next and, and looking for for continuous improvement, we we approach every project like a new project every time, and um, we we don't fix a lot of the problems. The same problem that my stepdad, who started the company, um, experienced 40 years ago, are still happening in construction. And subcontract my company is responsible for that in some way, shape, or form. So my question to you is, do you think that we're part of the problem? We are definitely part of the problem, but the, the owner shares a role in this. This is my personal belief, Dan, 
And I think that everybody who's in the construction industry has some responsibility in how we do things. We are not victims to the systems we play in. We are active participants. And some people more understand that better than others. You know, so for those of us that do, and we set the vision for how things can be, we're extra responsible. I don't even think about subcontractors in that way anymore. I think of them as trade partners. You know, for me to do what we do every day on leading a project, I've got to get, you know, 60 different entities to act for mutual benefit. So that that is my role. And in order to do that, I have to serve those 60 entities so that A, they want to helpful, they want to be helpful. And I've never, I've actually never come across, because I have that approach, I've never come across a trade partner that was like actively working against the project. It just hasn't happened for me. I've heard stories about it, but I think that my approach is a little bit different in how I see it. And I, and I also am aware that in the United States, there have been multiple uh, owners that have built large healthcare construction. The closest one uh, that I remember in my lifetime was in Irvine. Irvine, California, and one of the the plumbing uh, contractor was on that job. It was on a job that I was on a couple towns away, and they're like, "We're building this whole thing, Felipe, and there's no GC. Like the owner is doing the thing without a GC." And I was like, "Oh my god, my days are numbered." So I'm thinking, okay, we've already got owners experimenting with no general contractor, so I know it's possible, and the job was a success. It even won awards, and no general contractor. Now I heard. There was a lot of like, you know, challenges with that. And there was, there was a learning curve definitely for the owner. Now that, and that job, the owner didn't do the second job without a GC. They went back to hiring a GC again, but that's a, that's what I would call a weak signal. That's a warning shot that, you know, if we don't adapt and take more responsibility for how we're doing things, we're going to eliminate ourselves and we'll eliminate ourselves in the market because we're not adding value. We're frustrating clients. So we got to be careful with that. And the same is true with trade partners. If we don't really partner together and put the project ahead, and I like your approach, like you might make money, you might not. I mean, I would argue that you will always make money with that approach as a consequence. It's just going to happen. I've seen the same thing happen. When you serve other people and put others' needs ahead of your own, you'll get taken care of. It's like one of those magical things that I can't explain why it's true, but I know it to be true based on thousands of experiences. So I think that we, as an industry, that have the, whoever's frustrated listening to this, and you're like, I think it could be better, or you have an intuition, or you just had like a string of bad days, you have the potential to make it better. All you got to do is find some like-minded people that think that we can improve, and we we partner together, and we do make it better. But I think that, uh, you know, we downplay the owner sets the tone for how we deliver projects to a much greater extent that people don't even realize. So like all of us in the marketplace, there are only so many owners, right? There are way more, there are way more trade partners than anybody else. And then, and then the next biggest group is general contractors. And then the next biggest group is the design community. And then the teeniest, tiniest group are the owners. And you'll find as you talk to more owners that they don't collaborate among other owners. And what they all do is they propagate the same thing that, like you said, like your stepfather or their their parents did or people that brought them up. They're just maintaining the same thing in the industry and they're not transforming it because nothing in their organization rewards changing. Just like the same struggle Michaela's facing when she's engaging with people 
saying like, we want to transition you, broaden your skills and, you know, shift you to a mechanic versus a super specialized silo. The same thing is true. We see this. I mean, if you just look at people that make up owners groups, you typically see people that, and most owners groups, Dan, have a high turnover rate. They can't keep their project managers. And that says something too about, you know, what kind of organization they are that people don't want to fight to stay working there. Like I look at a company, so I'll look outside just to, and you don't really realize this until you look outside. So let's look at Toyota, who's like super into, they don't even call it lean, but just the Toyota production system, which a lot of the stuff that we borrow comes from. The turnover rate at Toyota worldwide across the entire planet, and they're operating on all continents except for Antarctica. Uh, their turnover rates less than 1%. Well, less than 1%. And then the people that retire, I follow a bunch of retired uh, Toyota people on LinkedIn because they are like a fountain. They're like a fire hose of information, just they can't turn it off. Their experiences at Toyota were so profound, so radically different, so beneficial to, to society that they're out there retired, giving information away for free, showing people how to do it, because that they know there is a better way. There are better ways. Yeah. And there and it's more like when you think about yourself as a person, it just feels right. Like everything about making a better experience, you know, for your people, for your customer, it just feels right. And benefiting people around you. There's an intuition about that that we often forget about when we get too busy focused on outcomes. And I loved earlier on, like I was, I was like high-fiving you from across the street. You couldn't see me, Dan, because you were in the zone, but you were talking about, you wanted to focus more on the process. And this was me like high-fiving you in my mind. I was waiting for the right time to jump up and slap that camera. But a lot of people get hyper-focused on the results, but we might be focused on the wrong results. And a lot of the metrics we look at in the industry, like the very things that clients are overly hyper-focused on sometimes are not things that they should even pay attention to. It's just noise. It's not what they want. And they downplay, you can even see that in how, you know, the clients that we interact with, how do they talk about their stakeholders? How do they talk about their end users? That'll tell you a lot about how they're engaging with their larger community, who they're really developing. And if you're, if you're talking to a healthcare client, so you're out there, healthcare owners, and your project managers don't think about the, the patient, if the patient doesn't come up in every conversation during your construction project, including design, you're probably missing something. It should be patient centric. And just like we do in schools, this is where like the school higher education does a little bit better that I think than healthcare is that in the schools, they're always talking about the kids or the students. I hear this all the time. We're doing some work with one of the community colleges here in the area. And just in two phone calls that I've talked to one of their administrators, they've mentioned the students every single time. And two, that's 100% hit rate. I can go a year, you know, on a healthcare job and never hear the patient mentioned. You know, as we look across, you know, I'm talking about from the client, from the client, right? So that type of stuff, like the client really sets the environment to a greater extent. And like, you know, people like yourselves, like you and Michaela, you're really bucking that trend and you're, you're pushing back and you're you're doing something that's different. And I think it's worthwhile for anybody to explore that more. We can't expect, we can't expect as an industry that the owners are just going to know. We got to bring them along and have yeah. those shared awareness moments. Those They need contrasting experiences so that they can see that there are other things possible and they don't have to keep doing things the same way.
And just one short little story, we talked to a client in Dallas, Texas, and they they had heard about, they'd gone to some lean construction events and they're like, we would love to do that stuff, that lean stuff. That's how they were calling it, that lean <laughs> stuff. But we can't, we can't do it because our contract doesn't allow it. We can't do it because of this. We can't do it because of that. And I was like, no, you can't do it because you don't want to do it. I was like, all you have to do, like even in your request for proposal process, I was like, are your lawyers stopping you from asking questions in your RFP? And they're like, well, no. I was like, what if you just ask the general contractors, how do they collaborate? How do they, what are the things that you want to do that lean stuff that you like? And just ask an open-ended question and then just see what responses you get. And then you score it how you score it. And then there you go. Now you at least have some more information. And they were like, I didn't realize it was that easy. I'm like, yeah, you need to change. But don't worry, we'll help you. <laughs> well, it's been a great conversation. I loved, like I was saying earlier, I, I think you nailed it with um, the general contractor to subcontractor relationship and how, how we find people we want to work with and how we're going to change this industry is finding like-minded partners. And that also goes subcontractor to the general contractor, but really it's general contractor and subcontractor with the owner. I think that's where IPD, uh, where some of the magic happens with IPD is is getting everybody kind of on the, the same page. And at the end of the day, the owner is the ship and the captain, right? I mean, we get to be we get to be crew and some cargo and have a lot to do on the ship to make sure that it um, motors running. And um, I think that we 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 have our, our jobs, but the owner is the ship and the captain and they're going to set direction for where we're going in so many ways you guys have made a great show i, I think there's going to be a lot of inspiration that we're going to sprinkle into the industry today there's a lot of listeners all over all over that listen to the show for those types of things like what is really innovation what is really changing how we build so i want to thank both of you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and sharing what you're doing to change how we build worldwide and, you know, all those kids in, in Michigan that are looking at jobs in California, the weather is amazing. So I can't say enough. Like, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, we've lived in California for over 11 years. And uh, I think that's going to be the case for probably decades more to come. So it's everything that, that you see in Hollywood and more. It's awesome. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you down as one of our references. Your show, I've loved it. I love the from the first one um, to today. I love what you're doing. I appreciate uh, your commitment to making our industry better. I appreciate you doing it, and I'm going to enjoy watching it uh, from here forward. So uh, you have a great day, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. Awesome. Thank yeah. you, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michaela. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>